Uh, let's turn to John uh, 4. We're going to zero in on uh, verses 13 through 15. Uh, the context we read earlier, a weary Jesus is traveling uh, from um, traveling to Galilee from Judea, uh, traveling through Samaria. Many pious Jews would actually walk around Samaria uh, so as not to be contaminated, as it were, by its uh, soil. So hated were the Samaritans. But Jesus is traveling straight through. He comes to a well at noon. This is all described in verses 1 through 6. And he encounters there a woman of Samaria. He asks her for a drink of water. She is shocked. Uh, we read of that in verses 7 through 9, that he, a Jew, should be speaking to her, uh, a despised uh, Samaritan. And, and so in verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now she responds then uh, skeptically in verses 11 through 12, uh, he responds, Jesus responds uh, to her skepticism. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this ordinary water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, he's promising a water uh, that is, uh, is going to have a, a, a permanent uh, impact. It will not be like regular water where you drink it, you become thirsty again. No, the water that he has to give, obviously, this is going to be spiritual water. This is going to be different kind of miracle water. It will satisfy uh, your thirst so that you will never thirst again. This is going to be a lavish provision of water, a permanent uh, provision of spiritual water, such that you will never have to drink again to bring satisfaction uh, to your soul. However, she doesn't understand him, and so uh, she, uh, she counters in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking in worldly terms. She's still thinking in terms of uh, this life uh, and ordinary water. Uh, so Jesus then uh, says to her, verse 16, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And you want, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him uh, with uh, understatement, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus is giving us some insight into the nature of his incarnation, why he came, what was his mission. So we talked about that this morning, about, you know, how that, uh, you know, year in and year out, we, we typically, we speak of the incarnation in terms of the revelation to the Magi or the revelation to Joseph, for that matter, the, uh, the revelation to Mary, the revelation to the shepherds. And so typically we build our considerations around uh, the events uh, of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day themselves, but I think there's perhaps even more insight of a deeper, more theological and, and, and biblical nature that we have when we look at what Jesus himself says about what he came to do, uh, what he came to accomplish, and what he is saying to the Samaritan woman is that he came to give 
uh, a water. He gave to give this a spiritual uh, commodity, one that will satisfy both in time and in eternity. And as the interaction continues, we know from verse 29 that she came to believe. She goes out into the uh, the local village and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? In other words, Jesus summed up her life in those few words. And she's convinced this, this must be the Messiah. This must be the Christ. This must be the Savior. And in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. When she said, he told me all that I ever did. And uh, the people are proclaiming at the, at the end of verse 32, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. So what is it that Jesus came to do? So let's just consider this under a couple of headings. Number one, uh, he came to save uh, unlikely believers. Uh, Jesus, Jesus points out in verse 18, that she has no husband, but she has had five husbands. And she's now living with a man who is not her husband. In other words, she's living in sin, as we used to refer to it. She is living with a man outside of matrimony, outside uh, of wedlock. Uh, she is, uh, particularly as we understand from those times, she's a woman of the world. Uh, the world has disappointed her for sure, as she has gone from husband to husband to husband, uh, there must be a, a, dy a dynamic or a beauty about her that she's been able to marry and remarry and remarry and remarry. Uh, so she's a worldly woman. The, Jesus does not ignore her. He doesn't dismiss her. He doesn't show contempt for her. He's not disgusted with her. He engages her. Uh, she is savable, and he, know he knows that. And so he is engaging her. But for her to be saved... It will be necessary for Jesus to expose her various false gods that all have failed her to bring her to repent and to turn to him. In other words, she'll, she will need to understand, using the metaphor of water, that the water of this world has not quenched the thirst of her soul. Uh, so let's just digress for a little bit. What, what exactly uh, was this woman who's married five times and women, living with a man, uh, I guess we would call her his mistress, what was she after over these years? Well, we, we, can, we, can, we can try to put some things together. We're reading a bit between the lines, admittedly, but we're, we're not doing so not a on the basis of nothing whatsoever, but on the basis of the pattern of her life. What was she after? Jesus said, this is the man who told me everything I ever did. In other words, Jesus summed up her whole life by confronting her about her marital status. What was she after? Uh, well, well, it's likely to be that she was after pleasure. She's been in and out of five marriage beds. We can imagine that each time she had hoped that she was entering into what would be an exciting new relationship, either exciting because it was new or exciting because it was illicit. And then that, 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 uh, that, that marriage failed, 
That excitement uh, began to wane. The pleasure dried up, as it were. It proved to be just superficial. It proved to be just skin deep. It proved to be only temporary and ceased to satisfy. And so she went on. Whether, whether at her own instigation or the instigation of each of her husbands, she went on from man to man to man to man, now to the next man and to the next man, one right after another. What was he in pursuit of? Maybe it was pleasure. Or, or more broadly, it was uh, seeking after the, from the worldly wells, uh, the water of this world. Uh, maybe it was some fulfillment and satisfaction to be found in other people. It's been said that remarriage is the triumph of hope over experience. So it failed once, and try again, try again, try again, try again, try again. The triumph of the hope that maybe, maybe this time, maybe this time I'll really, maybe this will really be the person. Maybe this will be the key to my happiness. We talked about that this morning, about uh, people get married. They think... Um, that uh, that's going to be the key to their happiness. Then they'll be fulfilled. Then they'll be satisfied. Then the thirst of the soul will be quenched. Uh, that's what they think. And, and then when it's, uh, they find that they're not quite satisfied, then they begin to wander. They begin to look elsewhere. Maybe I married the wrong person. Maybe I, I need to, um, maybe this person who, who I find uh, more um, interesting and more engaging and more attractive and has more personality. And so, you move on to the next person, and then, and then that, uh, that breaks down. So you move on to the next person, and on, on it goes. We, those who put their hope in people put the hope of expectation, of fulfillment and satisfaction, the thirst of the soul quenched by the wells of this world, are inevitably going to be disappointed because people cannot bear that weight, just like marriage can't be bear it. People cannot bear the weight of those expectations. And so it is. You know, people put their hope in parents, or they put their hope in their children. The children are the key to their happiness and the key to their unhappiness, or uh, likewise uh, the parents, or maybe it's the pastors of the church, or a friend, or politicians. Think, uh, consider the triumph of hope over experience. You know, every, every couple of years we have hope that the whole country is going to turn around if we just elect these people. And in the end, so many of them just turn out to be exactly alike, and the problems just continue, and nothing seems to get much better, and we seem in, incapable of solving the major problems that confront our civilization. But we put our hope in, in people, specific people who are part of our lives. That seems to be something of what was going on here. Disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, one husband after another, then a man who's not her husband. Or we go to the worldly wells of uh, security. An unmarried woman in the ancient world is a vulnerable person. She would have no lawful means of support and very few options bef before her. In a world of men without the restraints of custom and law, the world is a scary pr place for women. And so she finds security in husbands. Then she'll be safe. If she, if she has a husband, she'll be safe. She'll be secure. Or in the other language we've been using, maybe then, then, then she'll be fulfilled. Then she'll be satisfied. Then she'll be safe. Then she'll, be, uh, then she'll find uh, happiness. And so, so it is uh, people today. You know, they'll, if, 
If they have enough money, they'll, be, they'll have financial security. That's what we say, isn't it? Find security in things, uh, security in, in a gated community, security with guns. Uh, the sum of, the sum of, of, of all this is, is that, is that uh, she has gone to the world's wells and returned to those wells again and again, over and over again, and those wells have come up dry. They are not able to satisfy the thirst of her soul. And if that's the summary of things, the point is she's an unlikely believer, but Jesus came, again, what's the purpose of the incarnation? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Right? She's lost. That's a whole category. I, I doubt that we're very um, clear on that anymore. People are lost. Jesus is the light of the world. People are wandering in darkness. He is the light, the one and only light, the true light, the light that illumines the real meaning of life and of time and eternity. And they are in, the world is in darkness, lost. But the point of the incarnation, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to call not the righteous. He came again. He came to call this is biblical language. This is Jesus describing his own mission. He came, he came to call not the righteous, but whom? Sinners. Sinners to repentance. She's a sinner. She's a lost sinner. That's who Jesus came for. This is why he's engaging her. These are the sorts of people he came to save. Uh, he came uh, not for the healthy who need no physician, but for the sick. One can be morally sick. She's morally, religiously, spiritually sick. She's the very kind of person that he came for. She's an unlikely believer uh, from one perspective, but on the other hand, she is exactly the kind of person that he has come to save. He doesn't shun her. He doesn't turn his back on her. He doesn't show contempt for her. He doesn't despise her. He seeks to save her. He pursues the lost coin and the lost sheep and the prodigal son. There is no category of persons beyond the saving purposes of Jesus Christ. She represents the very people he came to save. She represents the purpose of his mission, the purpose of the incarnation. Okay, so she is an unlikely believer and yet she believes. So if we look ahead in the chapter back to verse 35, Jesus says to his disciples, who are quite astonished and actually quite appalled that he is talking to this woman, and, and basically say to him, what are you doing talking to her, this immoral woman? He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. What's he talking about? He's talking about this unlikely convert and the other unlikely convert, these despised Samaritans, these people with whom his own countrymen looked down their noses, who they held in contempt ethnically, racially. No, he says, these are unlikely converts, perhaps, but they are fields that are white for the harvest. They are ready to be harvested into the kingdom of God. They are candidates for salvation. 
In other words, again, there is no category of person who is not a candidate, not targeted by the mission of the Son of God, God the Son, when he came into this world. So maybe you've been a skeptic all your life. Maybe you've been a funny skeptic. You know, you've been able to make fun of religious things. You've been able to make fun of Christianity and church going and all of that. And it's all been done in good humor. Or, or maybe you're a quiet skeptic. And you've been, you've been skeptical and unbelieving and cyn- cynical, but, but you're very quiet about it. Or maybe you're an angry skeptic. And you're upset because of Christianity and the things that it teaches and the positions that it holds and its moral code that you find offensive. And, and so you've, you've been a skeptic and you've been, you've been uh, unbelieving your whole life. There comes a point at which your cynicism will run dry. You're going to find that unbelief is unsatisfying. For years it might be that you have been clever, but ultimately you will come to see by the grace of God that for years you have been a fool and you'll come to see it. You're a candidate for the gospel. Or maybe you've been a materialist your whole life. All your life you've been collecting things. So, in my years, I have collected baseball cards. I got an attic full of baseball cards. Some of them are pretty valuable. They're not in mint condition, but I got the Mickey Mantle rookie card. That's worth a pile of money. That's so I understand, depending on its condition. I've been collecting, you know, nice books, leather-bound books for years, and uh, prints, uh, pictures of, uh, of uh, theologians and ministers, my heroes. Matthew Henry hangs on my dining room wall. But you know, when you get to what must be, I mean, admittedly, I've got to say, I've got to be about the last third of my life. I think it's about two-thirds over, all things being equal. I mean, I don't know if it's going to last another day, but all things being equal, two-thirds of it's gone. You know what you start thinking about? What am I going to do with all this stuff? It loses its value. I'm, it's not going with me. You can't take a trailer into, the, into, the, into eternity. And so it loses its value, and, and, and you begin to wonder, why, why did I collect all this stuff? What am I going to do with all this stuff that I have collected? And so, you know, things. People collect cars. People collect just lots and lots of things. Then what? I have a friend who builds retirement homes uh, out in California. And this is what he says about people as they get very late in life, they just start getting rid of everything. You spend your whole life accumulating cars and clothes and stuff. And you fill your houses with it, and then you get to the end of the life, and you just get rid of all of it. Why? Because you see it's not very valuable anymore. It doesn't satisfy any longer. It's not going to help me going forward. Or maybe you've, maybe you've been a, a hedonist. You've done it all, unrestrained. You scratched every itch, indulged every perversion. And then you get to the end of life, and you're all alone. And your relationships have been, you look back and they've been pretty shallow. They've just been, been based on mutual pleasure. Or maybe it's been power. All your life you've been pursuing the opportunity to operate the levers of power. Uh, you've been the one who's wanted to be in charge, in control. Maybe people have even said about you, you were a control freak. 
And uh, because of that, you've wrecked and ruined relationships. But at the end of life, you're, what you're going to find is that they don't satisfy. You'll be like this woman at the well who keeps going back again and again and comes to understand in this discussion, this con conversation, this confrontation with Jesus as he tells her everything that, that, that sums up her life has been all about. And she realizes that she's been drinking from the wrong wells. And what I'm saying is all of these, the skeptic, the materialist, the hedonist, the powerful, all are candidates for the kingdom of God. They can be saved. They can be delivered. They can be rescued. That's what we celebrate each year. When we celebrate the incarnation, it's the celebration of the incarnation of the Savior of the world. And you can not only be saved, but Jesus then takes that metaphor of the water. You drink of this water that I give, you'll never thirst again. He then goes further in chapter 7 and says, if any, if any, if, if any man, uh, he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And from his out of innermost being or out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Come to me and drink. That's, that's just the language of total commitment. Just, just come to me. There's, there's a coming to, to him. There's a coming to him. He's talking about faith, putting your faith in him. He's talking about repentance, turning from sin, turning from sin, coming to him. Believing in him, trusting in him, surrendering to him. If any man thirsts, do you thirst? Do you understand the way the world's wells have not been able to satisfy? They never do for anyone. You have to keep going back. They're superficial. They're shallow. They satisfy for just a moment, and then everything comes up dry again. And you have to keep going back and going back. And you come to realize at some point, hopefully, you come to realize they never will satisfy. Jesus says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Turn from the world's wells. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idols and your lusts. Repent. Come to me and drink. Commit. And receive what? The forgiveness of your sins. And receive a reconciliation with your maker, the God whom you were made to know. And you will receive the gift of eternal life. And, he says, from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And I think he's there talking about the psychological, spiritual impact. You'll receive peace, a peace that passes comprehension, a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. You'll receive contentment in whatever circumstance you encounter in life. And you'll receive it, this is what Jesus is saying, not as little drops from a faucet. Right? It's not even going to be like a glass of water or a pitcher of water. It's not even going to be like drinking out of a garden hose, which is what my age group all grew up, grew up doing. We'd play football on the street and we'd drink out of a garden hose. You can get a lot of water out of a garden hose. No, Jesus says, no, that's, that's, not, that's not the right image. Rivers just overflowing satisfying, refreshing rivers of water, this, this picture of this abundance of refreshment uh, that is experienced by those who come to me. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
and from his innermost being, from his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Uh, that's what he, he promises to us, deep satisfaction and fulfillment and refreshment from within. Is that your experience? You know, it's meant to be. Is that the experience that you have as a, as a churchgoer, uh, as a believer? Is, it, is, is that your experience? Uh, it's meant to be your experience that you would enjoy the, the refreshment of rivers of satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment and peace. And, and if it's not your experience, it can be, but it's got to be pursued. Let him come to me. One has to come humbly to Christ. One has to come humbly and call upon him. One has to come and acknowledge one's sin and repent of that sin and that, that autonomy and that rebellion and that unbelief. Turn from that and turn to him. And then that can be your experience. You can experience that, that uh, refreshment that comes not in a drop or a tube, but like a rushing river of water that overflows with a, this abundance. Uh, that's what he came to do. He came to save us. He came to save us from ourselves. He came to save us from our sin. He, he came to save us from our spiritual poverty, from, a, from our unbelief, and from the wretched wells of this water to which we find ourselves going back again and again, hope triumphing over experience to save us from the monotony and the futility of going again and again to the world's wells. He pleads with us to come to him because that's why he came to us. That's why, that's the reason behind the incarnation, to save us. To save us to engage us, to restore us to our true selves and find that uh, fulfillment and satisfaction that comes only from knowing God, whom we know in Christ Jesus our Lord, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the glorious gospel of the blessed God. This glorious message, this glorious reality, we give thanks for it, O Lord, and we pray for those who have not experienced the refreshment of the living waters. We pray that not a day would not another hour or minute would go by without the barriers within the heart falling and the soul rising up and coming to Christ for salvation and satisfaction. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.